0: Arson and Jackson, a family poisoned, horrible wife murder and double murder in Kentucky, safe blowers, jailbirds captured, and a mysterious murder in Georgia. All of this and more on a year of crime is reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for February the twenty third, eighteen eighty six. Jackson, Tennessee. Residents destroyed by fire, small merchandise failure, special to the appeal. Jackson, Tennessee, February the twenty second, between 12 and 1 o'clock last night, fire destroyed Mr. Robert Brown's large two-story frame residence in this city, together with most of his household and kitchen furniture. Loss about $3,000, no insurance. The origin of the fire is unknown, but it is believed that it was the work of an arson, as the fire broke out in the smokehouse where the family never had a fire. Attempt to Poison a Family Detroit, Michigan, February 22nd The Evening Journal's Corona Special says, Saturday night, an attempt was made to poison the family of Robert Berry of this city by putting Paris Green in his well. Several of the family drank the water and were taken sick, being saved by prompt medical attention. Sheriff Cole found Paris Green in the pump and tracks leading to the house of Mrs. Charles Gage, a neighbor and an enemy. Gage's daughter and her husband, Henry Schaefer, were arrested and taken to jail. More arrests are expected today. A side note on Paris Green. It's a very toxic, vivid green, crystalline salt of copper and arsenic and it's been used as a preservative a pigment and insecticide also to kill rodents and it was banned in the early 1900s. But apparently that color is still a very popular color for artists. Horrible Wife Murder An aged woman killed by her husband. Startling rumors about the Austin woman murders Double Tragedy at Pittsburgh Austin, Texas, February the 21st On Christmas Eve, two women were murdered in the city and their husbands were arrested. Mr. Hancock, the husband of one victim, was promptly acquitted on a preliminary examination while James W. Phillips, Jr., the young husband of the other woman, was sentenced to jail without bail after his preliminary trial. A few days ago, Mrs. Phillips, who was a beautiful woman, was found in the backyard with three terrible gashes on her head and a heavy rail across her breast, while Phillips was found in the bed, unconscious with the fearful wound on the side of his head, from the effects of which he lingered between life and death for two weeks. No suspicion at first attached to him, but when the state offered a $1,000 for the apprehension of the murderer, astonishing rumors began to circulate. They were so startling that unable to verify them, the local papers refused to publish them. The arrival of the Texas Figaro, a small newspaper from San Antonio, created a sensation here yesterday. It says that it has the entire story from a prominent citizen of unquestioned integrity who says that one of Pinkerton's detectives made the discovery that Mrs. Phillips was in the habit of meeting secretly a distinguished state politician at a secluded house and that she was accompanied sometimes by another woman who consorted with another prominent politician and state officer. He discovered further that on the night that Mrs. Phillips was murdered, she met this politician who escorted her home in a closed carriage. These facts were divulged to the city police authorities, who sent an emissary to the woman friend of Mrs. Phillips and gave her $3,000 to leave Texas and not appear at the preliminary examination against Phillips. The woman consented, but the detective prevented her going. In her guarded testimony, the woman corroborated the facts related, but she was not asked to name the politician who must have witnessed the murder of Mrs. Phillips. This man, said the Figaro yesterday, is a prominent state officer and an active candidate for the governorship of Texas. The other man is assistant to a chief of a department. Both are married. Wife Murder and Suicide, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, February the 22nd. Shortly before 7 o'clock last night, people living in the vicinity of Mulberry Alley and 22nd Street were startled by the report of four shots in quick succession. This was followed by the scream of children coming from the home of David Wilson. A crowd soon collected and forced their way into the house. They were horrified to find Mr. and Mrs. Wilson lying on the floor unconscious with bullet wounds in their heads. In the husband's hand, a small revolver tightly clasped told the story. Medical aid was summoned, but before the physician reached the house, Mrs. Wilson was dead. Wilson was insensible and has not yet recovered consciousness. He will probably die. Poverty is believed to have been the cause of the tragedy. Wilson has been out of employment for 16 months, and as he had six children, it was thought he became discouraged. The children say their father came home under the influence of liquor and after supper ordered them to bed. Shortly afterward, they heard loud words and then the pistol shots. Double Murder in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky, February twenty-second. A Courier-Journal special says a fatal encounter took place near Pineville, Kentucky, between a man named Lane and five men named Turner on Friday afternoon. There was an old feud existing between them. The Turners are celebrated as rough and bad men. They were in ambush hiding behind trees when Lane came along the road and they all fired upon him. Lane saw one of the Turners step from behind a tree and shot him dead. Almost immediately, Lane fell, his body being pierced by several bullets. Horrible Wife Murder, Ottawa, Illinois, February 22nd. Clarence J. Sears, 88 years old, a farmer, murdered his aged wife at their home four miles northwest of the city Saturday night. The old couple differed in their religious views and Sears, who is an enthusiast, recently arrived at the conclusion that his wife was a witch. She was nearly three score years and ten, of feeble mind, and it is said that she admitted her belief that she was gifted with the powers of witchcraft. At any rate, Sears became crazed by his hallucination and determined that it would be the best for him to kill her. Arming himself with a bandsaw, he went into a room where the old woman was seated. Their daughter-in-law and a couple of grandchildren were also in the room. Do you still believe yourself a witch? asked Sears of his wife. Her reply did not reach the ears of the witnesses, but it seemingly frenzied Sears, for he struck her down with the heavy saw, and despite the efforts of his daughter-in-law, hacked his old wife to death. He then turned upon the young woman and her children, and they were obliged to flee for their lives. Convinced that his wife was dead, Sears left the house. He was captured yesterday and lodged in jail. Heavy robbery. Chicago, Illinois, February 22nd. When original Andrews, the pawnbroker, left for Joliet recently to serve out his term of eight years in the penitentiary for stole, receiving stolen property, he left behind his wife and daughter to look after the family pawn shop at number 322 State Street. A week ago, J.C. Wallace was put in charge of the shop by the sheriff as custodian, representing Simon Frankel of New York, who had obtained a judgment of $1,300 against Andrews. For safekeeping, Wallace put about $700 worth of watches and jewelry into a box, which he allowed to remain in the store. Back of the room is the family parlor, also used as a private office. In this, Wallace put up a bunk and slept. In a little room adjoining slept Mrs. Andrews and her daughter, Our petition, which reaches only halfway to the ceiling, separates this little room from the larger one in which Wallace slept. Saturday morning, about 5 o'clock, Wallace says he was awakened by hearing Mrs. Andrews scream, Fire! Murder! And robbers! He saw her in his room. When she found he was awake, she said, I have been robbed. $1,300 is missing from under my pillow and $200 worth of jewelry. You are robbed too, Mr. Wallace. Your boxes are broken open. Wallace went into the store to investigate. He found the boxes broken open and realized that the jewelry was gone. He wondered at the time how Mrs. Andrews knew the boxes were broken open and it, as it was dark in the store, and she could not have seen them from where she was standing when she told him he had been robbed. The back door was found unlocked. It had been opened from the inside, so had the shutters to the back windows. Wallace noticed that although there was light snow on the ground, there were no tracks leading away from the doors, steps, or the window. Wallace felt dazed as though he had been chloroformed. Mrs. Andrews claims that her loss is $1,300 in money, which was under her pillow, and $200 in jewelry, which was in her room. It is reported that there was $2,700 worth of jewelry and watches stolen from the boxes in the custody of Wallace, but he said last night that there was not more than $100 worth stolen from him. The sheriff is responsible for the amount stolen from custodian Wallace and will have to indemnify Simon Frankel, the holder of the judgment. The police say that it is a clever burglary. They have made no arrest. Safe blowers nabbed. Chicago, Illinois, February 22nd. The city detectives are jubilant over their success in capturing a sextant of safe blowers who have operated successfully throughout the city during the last two months. Each one of the gang has made an unqualified confession of the full extent of their operations, and the evidence is already prepared that will probably land everyone in the penitentiary. A complete kit of safe-blowing tools, together with a quantity of blasting powder, was found at their rendezvous and a large amount of plunder, including $30,000 worth of papers. The result of the recent shimped burglary was recovered yesterday from under a pile of lumber near the Northwestern Railroad Bridge. In the pocket of one of the men were a number of wildcat bank bills and a memorandum containing the addresses of several business firms and complete descriptions of the interiors of the stores. Daring Robbery Cleveland, Ohio, February 22nd. This morning, a colored man called at the residence of Mrs. Nafer, number 946 4th Street, and asked for a trunk, which had been left there by a friend of the family. Mrs. Nafer showed the man to the room containing the trunk when he seized her and applied chloroform to her nostrils. When she became unconscious, he robbed the dresser of $2,000 in money. Short in his accounts, St. Paul, Minnesota, February the 22nd. A special from Devil's Lake, DT, says Andrew Holman of Lakota, treasurer of Nelson County, recently visited St. Paul. But, not returning at the appointed time, an investigation of his official accounts has developed a shortage in the county funds of $11,400. Although he has 28 bondsmen for the aggregate sum of $30,000, it is generally believed that little more than $2,000 can be recovered from them, being mostly small farmers few worth more than the $1,500 exemptions. Murder at Cincinnati, St. Louis, Missouri, February 22nd. Two young men, strangers, named Charles Norman and Henry Noller, registered last Saturday at the Miami Hotel in this city and have spent the time since then until this morning in enjoying themselves generally. Early this morning, Norman was found lying across the baluster of the stairway on the fourth floor mortally wounded with a bullet in the left breast. A pistol was found a short distance from the body. He was carried into his room and died from the effects of his wound in a short time without regaining consciousness. It is supposed that he and his friend returned to the hotel early this morning and in a friendly scuffle the pistol was accidentally discharged with the above effect. Knoller has been arrested. Jailbirds captured. Carthage, Missouri, February 22nd. Sheriff Bailey returned from Dade County with George Hamilton, James Williams, James Fortune, and James O'Neill, four of the nine prisoners who escaped jail here Wednesday. The Georgia Murder Mystery, Savannah, Georgia, February 22nd. Later developments have put an entirely new phase on the murder of the two boys whose corpses were found in the woods six miles from the city on Friday. Olive Beaton, alias Porter, colored, has identified the corpses as those of her two sons, Cornelius and William, aged respectively nine and seven years, who disappeared from home on the ninth instant. The woman had repeatedly quarreled with Henderson Vaughn, a colored man from Fortress Monroe, with whom she had been living. Vaughn was one of a barbarously cruel disposition and threatened to take a terrible revenge for an offense which he charged the woman with having given him. On the ninth instant, the pair had a bitter quarrel, which was followed by the disappearance of Vaughn and the two boys from home during the woman's absence. Near the bodies of the boys was found a sheet of paper which Vaughn's employer recognized as one he gave him. The pieces of rope about the necks of the murdered lads have uh, has also been recognized by Vaughn's employer as having been cut from his well. Vaughn has neither been seen nor heard of since his disappearance. While the new development seemed to point conclusively to the guilt of Vaughn, Graham, the Negro lunatic, who had virtually confessed having slain the lads as a sacrificial offering to God, still sticks to his story, and thus there are two theories concerning the crime, each of which is backed by strong evidence. The two missing sons of John Byrd, whom the corpses were yesterday supposed to represent, have not been found yet, and it is feared that they are the ones to whom Graham referred and will eventually be found dead secreted somewhere in the woods. Fraud and Corruption in the Soldiers' Orphan Schools of Pennsylvania Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, February the 22nd. The Record this morning publishes a six-column article on the management of the Soldiers' Orphan Schools of Pennsylvania, which alleges not only official discrimination, neglect, and corruption, but also that a syndicate is profiting at the rate of $50,000 a year in the management of four of the schools. A voluminous array of figures is given to support the allegations. In some of the syndicate schools, children are packed together in bedrooms and schoolrooms like herrings. Fifty-three children were removed last fall from good schools, single beds, and pleasant surroundings in the northern home to sleep in foul rooms at Chester Springs. At Mercer, in consequence of of the methods employed by the management, some of the boys bathed in pickle barrels, two to each barrel. At Chester Springs, some 25 or 30 pupils have been derived of all schooling for three months. All regard for the children seems to have been subordinated to a heartless grab for profit and this evil influence has been carried to such an extent that a premium of $20 a head has been paid to agents to recruit children for various schools. It is because of this competition and because of the comparative scarcity of orphans that the schools are now half filled with children whose parents are living off the $350,000 appropriated annually by the state to pay for feeding, clothing, and educating these wards of the state. It is calculated that nearly $90,000 is absorbed in excessive profits. Texas Land Swindle. Thousands of people being victimized by old certificates. Austin, Texas, February the 22nd The land agents of this city have within the past few weeks received a flood of inquiries from persons in New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, and other points as to the status of Texas land certificates. It appears that some parties are unloading Texas certificates and have somehow created a demand and found purchasers. Some of the certificates are out of date and worthless and others are of little value as there is now in sight no public domain upon which to locate them. Texas holders unable to sell have in many cases illegally located these certificates upon lands especially set aside for school and university purposes or asylum lands or lands belonging to the railway railroad companies. This they have done in the faint hope that at some future time the legislature will validate their locations, especially those upon common school lands. There is no public domain in Texas any longer, and the holders of these certificates, of which there are several thousand outstanding, are undoubtedly finding a market for them among the moneyed people of the East and North. These certificates all bear date about 100 years back and are very scarce in Texas because they have been picked up and sent east for the benefit of unsuspecting land speculators of the north. It has been repeatedly suggested by prominent men in the state that Texas ought to advertise the true condition of these old certificates and thus prevent thousands of people being swindled to the detriment of the good name of the state. A grocery blown up at Winchester, Kentucky. Winchester, Kentucky, February 22nd. At noon today, a powder explosion occurred in the grocery store of Mary Wills. The clerk was in the act of weighing some powder from a can when a man standing near the counter struck a match to light a cigar. This ignited the powder, which exploded with terrible violence. The house was badly wrecked. The eight persons were severely wounded. Two of them, James Hopper and Will Murray, are in a dying condition, and several others will probably not recover. The man who struck the match escaped unhurt. Mary Wills and the two others were unhurt. The house took fire, but the flames were soon extinguished. The injured are Bird White, Thomas Martin, James Newkirk, James Hopper, William Murray, John Judy, James Catrick, and Buford Smith. Corinth, Mississippi. Supposed accidental homicide investigated dramatic engagement. Corinth, Mississippi, February 21st. Jim, Son of a Mrs. Cleary, who lives out from town a short distance, died very suddenly on the seventeenth instant and was buried the following day. After the body was buried, it was whispered around and came to the ears of the coroner that a few days before the boy's death, a fellow schoolmate threw a brick and hit him just back of the neck and below the skull. The body was, by order of the coroner, taken from the grave. A jury was impaneled and a post-mortem examination held by Dr. Stanford and Young when it was found that the deceased died from congestion of the lungs, one lung being entirely gone. The post-mortem examination is a great relief to the father of the boy supposed to have unintentionally caused his schoolmate's death, and more particularly to the boy as it will spare him many gloomy thoughts and which might have been the cause of wrecking a young life and leading him to the scenes of dissipation. Ohio Dynamiters Bound Over, Cleveland, Ohio, February 27. Marion Hawkins, a sawmill laborer, and Willis Kendall, a student in the academy at West Farmington, Ohio, were each bound over to court today in $1,000 bail on the charge of unlawfully using dynamite. The men are suspected of having placed a dynamite cartridge under Hawley's saloon, which was blown up one week ago. There is great excitement in the town as a result of a prolonged temperance agitation and the prisoners were therefore taken before a country justice 20 miles from West Farmington. They waived an examination. Claims that he is being blackmailed. New York, February 22nd. F. Foster Smith, who until two years ago was a resident of St. Louis and who came here and invested money in a steamboat line, has been in Ludlow Street Jail for several months with no apparent chance of getting out as he is held on an action for debt and since his imprisonment his steamboats have been sold and he is left penniless. He claims that he is being blackmailed. His lawyer says that all that stands between him and an advancement of his case is a lack of $100 to pay court costs which have been assessed against him. Deputy Marshal Assaulted by Mormons. Salt Lake, Utah, February 22nd. At 7 o'clock this evening, as United States Attorney Dixon was leaving the dining room of the Continental, three men asked to see him at the outer door. He went when one struck him in the face, it is supposed with a stone, and the other two aiding him. Judge Powers and Major Early, landlord of the hotel, thinking the action of the men peculiar, followed and got to the door just after Dixon had been struck. Frank J. Cannon, son of George Q. Cannon and Angus Cannon, were two of the assailants. The other is not known. The unknown man ran. Judge Powers put the other two under arrest. Angus Cannon, when searched, was found to have a self-cocking pistol with all the chambers loaded. A great crowd collected, among them women, one of whom was heard to say, Serve Dixon right. I wish they'd killed him, for he most killed the father. Dixon is not seriously hurt frequent listeners will remember this story of the Thayer Mutiny. Arrival of the survivors at New York. New York, February 22nd. Captain Robert Clark, his wife and daughter, and 14 seamen, survivors of the American ship Frank N. Thayer, which was burned at sea on January the 4th, 700 miles southeast of St. Helena, reached the city today from Liverpool. Captain Clark is a typical American sailor, very tall, with coal black beard, hair, and eyes. Were it not that he occasionally placed his hand on an ugly plaster covered cut upon his right cheek, no one would suspect that he still suffered from the effects of his encounter with the two crazy Manila seamen, who, before firing the ship, endeavored to wipe out every white man on board. When a reporter spoke to him, his eyes brightened, and after a long pause, he said, "'I am not in a mood to tell you all about my experiences, for I am still suffering the great agony.' Upon my arrival in England, I went to some of the best physicians, but beyond covering my wounds, they did nothing. My wife here, pointing to a small, pale, but pretty woman, is just as bad as I. She has no wounds, it is true, but her mind was so upset by the mutiny and its horrible effects that I fear she will never recover. Were the Manila sailors ill-treated before the attack, the captain was asked? They were not, beyond the fact that they received a cuff from the chief officer for insubordination. New York, February twenty-second, Kenward Phillip, aged 40 years, an Englishman by birth, and at one time charged with forging the famous Maury Letter in 1880, died Sunday morning at his residence in Brooklyn. A quick look on Wikipedia shows that the Maury Letter was a letter that showed up during the 1880 United States presidential election, supposedly written by James A. Garfield, who was the Republican presidential candidate, and it suggested that Garfield was in favor of Chinese immigration. Later, it was declared a forgery. A whole family poisoned. St. Louis, Missouri, February 22nd. Alexander McLean, wife and three children, and Annie Reardon, an old lady living at number 913 North 9th Street, who are very poor, applied to the Provident Association Sunday for assistance. A quantity of cornmeal was given them, which was made into bread and eaten by all six. Shortly afterward, they were all taken sick, and the physicians called in said they were suffering from arsenic poisoning. The doctor thinks the children will recover, though he does not feel justified yet in pronouncing the three old people out of danger. There is nothing to indicate how the poison got into the meal. You might recall this next story about some stolen horses. The Clinton, Kentucky officer who came here a day or two since to take charge of a couple of stolen horses recovered by the police said the owner was a poor man and no reward was offered. A lot of circulars were found after the officer had departed with the horses, offering a reward of $25 each for the horses and thieves. The jury in the Madewell case had not agreed at a late hour yesterday evening. And here's a bit more about those horses. Several days since the appeal contained an account of the capture by the police of two horses, which were shipped here on the steamer Gayoso by a couple of men who ordered them sold and agreed to wait until the return of the boat for their money. The officers of the boat, working with the police, who at once suspected that the horses were stolen, notified Sheriff Haskins of Osceola, who took them in charge. It was afterward discovered that the horses were stolen from Herman Hale near Clinton, Kentucky, and that the men caught by Haskins escaped from jail at Clinton. The pair are said to have stolen 100 or more horses. They passed through the city yesterday en route to Clinton in charge of Sheriff Haskins. And that's a wrap for February the 23rd, 1886. Please join us next time for A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.